Hello and welcome to Science Shambles on this Ada Lovelace Day 2019. So we thought we should put out the episode we recorded a couple of months ago live at the RI with Dr Helen Chersky, Professor Lucy Green, Dr Susie Gage and Dr Linda Cremonisi chatting about the science uh, that doesn't necessarily make the headlines. It's just going along in the background, quietly changing the world, but... uh, not making the news at 10. So that's what this episode is all about. A quick reminder of some stuff we've got going on before we get to the episode. The Cosmic Shambles Network, our events, our podcasts, documentaries, blogs, all that sort of stuff is only made possible by your support on Patreon and buying tickets to our live shows. So you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to pledge as little as a dollar a month to support what we do there or you can get tickets to some of our upcoming live shows, uh, like Signals, which uh, the comedy play about uh, radio astronomy is on tour now. That will be at the Norwich Science Festival as well, followed by a talk by Professor Lucy Green. We'll be there with Chris Lintot and Steve Pretty as well. Robin Ince is on tour with Chaos of Delight in November, and at the end of November and in December, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People is back in Salford and London, although, uh, as always, profits from those shows, all the profits go towards charity. Everyone on this panel will be a part of that show, as well as lots of other people. Uh, Some new guests we announced this week are Angela Sani and Chris Jackson, so make sure you get tickets to come along and see them and everybody else. And just before we start the episode, uh, you'll hear Helen mention a Q&A as part of this panel. That's not part of the podcast that's gone out, so I don't think you've missed something and skipping back trying to find it uh, for you know all sorts of clearance reasons. That is not part of the podcast, but the hour-long panel discussion is here in its entirety for you. We hope you enjoy it. Hello. So welcome to Science Shambles and well done to the audience and the listeners at home for having the good taste to to put your trust in us, to listen to the science that doesn't normally get talked about. Um, Everyone here on the panel, we talk about science a lot, we're enthusiastic about a lot of things, um, but there are some things that people just don't want us to say and it's really boring. And so here we can do what we like, so we're going to say them anyway. And uh, so with me to discuss the unsung science, and this is going to be lots of little things, there's going to be lots of little nuggets tonight, but with me to share their expertise on this, uh, we have Susie Gage, who's a lecturer at the University of Liverpool, an epidemiologist, Professor Lucy Green, who um, is a professor at UCL studying the sun, and uh, Dr Linda Cremonesi, who's a postdoc at UCL working on Lots of... Ato- I, I should have asked you how you describe yourself, shouldn't I? Ato- what, how, go on, how would you describe yourself? Ultra-high-energy neutrino hunter. Okay. <laughs> she does that. There you go. It does make it look, sound like you're looking for like frozen elves or something. But anyway, um, so the so way this is going to work, we're going to talk about, um, we're going to jump about between topics. And that's deliberate because some of the nice things about this, these things is that they're, they're linked because it's not just that um, some bits of science don't meet the headlines. It's that a certain type of science doesn't generally meet the headlines, even though it can be just as important, maybe important in 20 years' time, maybe important 20 years ago, but still worth listening to. So we're going to um, 
find our way through all of that. So, but to start with, I just want to talk a little bit about what sort of, what is the science we're talking about? Like, you know, we know what's in the headlines, lots of health things, things where anything's blown up, things, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, you know, particle physics, cosmos, new telescopes, everyone likes pictures of stars. What, where, where are the, where are the, what's the science that doesn't make the headlines? Who's going to start us off on that? Lucy, go on. Okay, okay I'll, I'll dive in. So since you talked about things exploding and stars and telescopes and things, I think the thing that I'm really conscious of is that um, as someone who's studying the sun, I know how easy it is to put up a pretty picture. Our sun is incredibly good looking. And if I put that picture up and other scientists put those kind of pictures up, it, it, it gets noticed, it gets talked about. But there's so much science that we do in space science that doesn't have any pretty pictures associated with it. So I'm kind of drawn to that area, naturally, as sort of my theme for this evening. And I remember several years ago when I was sort of starting to get into doing um, outreach activities and talking about the science um, to, to anyone who will listen, quite frankly, um, that people said, oh, well, if you have a good picture, your story will be covered. And in fact, you don't even need a good science story, you just need a good picture. <laughs> and then you might make the front page of a newspaper. And I was sort of really taken by that at the time. And I, and I saw it actually as a positive. But now this evening, I'm sort of reflecting on it as actually being a negative because it meant I sort of channeled what I was talking about then to be based around pretty pictures. And, you know, that's one way of, of um, approaching how we study the universe. But the other way is that we want information that doesn't come in pictorial form. So, for example we have spectroscopy where we're taking the light from our sun and other stars and it's giving us information about temperature and uh, velocities and comp chemical composition and things like that but that's, that doesn't quite sound so sexy but it tells us about fundamental things about stars and how stars evolve so I think that, that's where I'd kick off my thoughts for this evening that it's, 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 it's not to, to be too distracted by the pretty pictures. Susie, how about in your line of science? Well the thing that really interests me that doesn't necessarily interest uh, journalists that I talk to about. I, so the research that I do is looking at the links between recreational drug use and mental health. So that's obviously something that's got a lot of media attention. It's quite like lots of people have opinions about it. Lots of people are interested in it. It's relevant to lots of people. But the the way that we do it is the thing that I find really interesting because it's really challenging to do. So I think the methods that we develop to better answer really difficult and complicated questions is quite an unsung part of science, but something that's really fundamental, particularly when we're dealing with health research and stuff that's going to be really relevant to us living our lives and how we um, look out for ourselves and look after each other. And just you know, to be clear, so when we're talking about methods, you know, that's the, 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 the process and the analysis of the science, but it takes years because you do it, you try it, and then you work out that the word, it didn't quite work that way, so you do it another way. And once you've got a way that it works, then everyone can use that method, more or less. Is that... You yeah, know? absolutely, but also we've been... There's kind of a way of doing things in medical research. People have probably heard of randomised controlled trials as being kind of the gold standard of like evidence in terms of thinking about medical research, testing an intervention by comparing it to a placebo and seeing what happens. But actually, there are ways that you can improve a randomised controlled trial. There are ways that you can conduct it quite badly. So trying to understand sort of what ways we can improve it, but also topics like what I research, drug use and mental health. You can't randomly assign a group of teenagers to use cannabis or use alcohol, you know. <laughs> Ethics committees really don't go for it for some reason. <laughs> 
So we're left. I bet, with... I bet the teenagers would. <laughs> well, I mean, not if they were only allowed to do one. Or if got... <laughs> imagine if you got put in the control condition and all your friends were doing something else. <laughs> Although, probably better for you. Um, but so... it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, you saying that made me think about the popularity, and I know this is a, a maybe facile example, of Bake Off, right? People watch people cooking and they are interested in the process and they're interested in when the process goes wrong. No one is interested in the final cake. I mean, I'm not a Bake Off fan. There may be people in the audience. The final cake, surely. I don't know, but it, but it's interesting that they make a whole program about the methods. That's true. Maybe do I they? should pitch a program of watching me do stats. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's let's see where we get to today. <laughs> Linda, how about you? What what do you see as a science that isn't talked about? Yeah, so as a particle physicist, it's I find it very interesting because like every time I introduce myself to. I don't know, someone new, and I say, I'm a particle physicist. They're like, ah, do you work on the Higgs boson? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> so there's a lot of particle physicists, particle physics, that doesn't get as much publicity as the Higgs boson. And for example, I work on neutrinos that are like these tiny particles that are everywhere, and I'm not going to bore you too much uh, with them. But one of the experiments that I work on is a little bit of an underdog in an underdog field. Because uh, um, it's called ANITA, and it's an experiment based in Antarctica, and it's funded by NASA. So every time I, I mention NASA, everyone is like, wait, what? Are you on a space mission? No. You should know that NASA has quite a big balloon program. So <laughs> it's a giant helium. It's an experiment attached to a giant helium balloon in, in Antarctica. And then after that, like, I managed to get people a little bit more interesting, interested in what I do. But, uh, you know, we're in the corner of the corner of the corner. But it is brilliant, that. Like, yeah. I've been to one of NASA's balloon facilities in America. And, and it is this, like, I, what I love about balloons is they're actually a really good way to study the atmosphere because they're just, you know, they, they're not in interfering with anything there's no big rocket engines you just kind of drift about and see what goes on um if you're lucky in doing what we do and you launch it and then you track it and you have to find it when it comes down it's quite a good game but it's an even more difficult game when you know it falls down in, in antarctica <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we just found some bonkers people in the forest with a chainsaw i bet you <laughs> something else and yeah, get the penguins coming to help you um but but it's a really good way of doing science but because it's not rockets people are like oh balloons like, no balloons are really cool and so i just finished thinking balloons are really cool we were just leaving the facility and we were I was driving one of those big Yukon those ridiculous sized American cars and I did the British thing which is do a three-point turn to turn around in the driveway Americans don't do that so no one had it hadn't occurred to the Americans to make their very expensive touch card entry thing high enough to see when you were reversing a car so I ran over the uh, card thing at the NASA wallops facility and then had to go back and knock on the door and say um I'm really sorry <laughs> Uh, yes, so I so I haven't been back. <laughs> um, so so maybe well let's start let's start picking apart some of these individual cases then. So Linda, maybe let's start with you. So you had an example about proton therapy. Yes, exactly. So one of the examples is that I had was proton therapy, and I don't know how many people here are familiar with that. Um, so um, sometimes when you have cancer, it needs to be treated with radiotherapy. And traditionally, that's uh, made uh, with uh, high-energy photons. And, uh, and the, the plus of radiotherapy is, of course, it kills cancer, and uh, you can... You can direct it quite well on the, on, on the cancer cells. The, the downside of radiotherapy is that you can damage uh, the tissue all around it as well. So you can damage healthy tissues. 
Um, whereas with proton therapy, is, uh, is quite a new, um, it's quite a new field, so it's a similar concept. So instead of bombarding the cancer with high-energy protons, sorry, photons, you're bombarding the, can the, the cancer with protons. So you take, a, you take hydrogen, you strip the electron from, from the hydrogen, and then you accelerate your, um, what you're left, which is the proton with some magnets, and then you direct it towards the, the bed cells. The good thing about proton therapy is that it can be extremely precise. So you can use it to just literally just kill the cancer and, uh, and, leave, and, and leave the um, healthy tissue around it almost intact. At the moment, there is uh, one big uh, pro uh, proton therapy uh, center in Manchester, and then UCL here in London is uh, uh, building another one, and I think it will be operational from, uh, from next year. It's very interesting, though, when you look at this, uh, at um, the views on proton therapy around the world, though, because uh, there's many people, because it's extremely expensive, at the moment it's only mainly used on kids, because it's, it's still very expensive and it can't be used on, on everyone. But then there's also quite a lot of interest from uh, people that have invested in, in radiotherapy to not have um, many of those centers built. So for example, in Italy, there, uh, there's also hadron therapy centers in which instead of just using protons, you can use uh, um, uh, helium as well in the same in the same way. It sounds brilliantly sort of Star Trek, doesn't it? It sounds yeah. like something that's happened on the Starship Enterprise. And, and it's very effective. So it's a proven technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a proven technology. It's been, it's been used all over, the, uh, all over the world. But at the moment, it's still very expensive. And uh, uh, there's, a still, there's quite a lot of research trying to make it like, cheaper, if you want. But we're a long way away. Yeah. And, and Susie, sticking on the health theme, you, so your methods, right? Yeah. Tell us about the sorts of methods that. What 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 are the examples that, that well, where we, it really matters? If we think back to my um, unsuccessful ethics application, <laughs> so we can't do a randomised controlled trial to look at these questions. So we have to do an observational study. We have to watch what people choose to do, and the people who choose to use cannabis are going to be different from the people who choose not to in lots of ways, other than just their cannabis use, and. In order to take account of this, you can do statistical modelling to include these things we call confounding variables or confounders. But you have to know what they are, and you also have to have good measures of them in your data sets. And usually the data sets that I'm working with are kind of ones that the data has been collected. I don't get to do any of the data collection. These data sets already exist, and I use them, which is amazing. But you've got very little control over what's there. So it's really hard to rule out this kind of confounding. So give us an example of a confounding factor. Okay, so thinking about the relationship between cannabis and mental health, there might be all sorts of things that might happen in your childhood. For example, childhood adversity might both um, make you more likely to use cannabis and also predispose you to poor mental health. So it could just be that the reason you see cannabis use at high levels in people with poor mental health is because they've had this... So it's the same root cause exactly. that causes... But they're actually independent outcomes. So, yeah, so you have to try and take account of these things in your statistical analysis. But the problem is you have to kind of know about them and measure them well, and that can sometimes be difficult to do. So you can never really be truly sure in just a kind of observational study like that that what you're not seeing is just more of this confounding. So how do you ever separate out causation and correlation in that case? Well, so this is where, um, when I was... Half the audience's ears also pricked up with yours, <laughs> and the other horse went, oh. oh God. <laughs> Here she goes. <laughs> um, when I was working in Bristol as a postdoc, there was a big um, group of people who were trying to come up with 
ways of analysing this secondary data to try and get at causality. And none of these methods are perfect, but the idea is if you can use lots of different methods that all have different limitations, you can kind of triangulate it onto the question that you're interested in. So if you're thinking about the problem of confounding, then one way is to look at the same question in two different data sets that have got completely different underlying confounding patterns. And so you, um, when we were talking about planning this event, you said maybe we could bring papers that we think are unsung. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that I have a favourite research paper. I mean, everyone's got a favourite research paper, right? Um, and <laughs> this one is using what this kind of cross-contextual study it's called to look at the impact of breastfeeding on a variety of different outcome measures. Because we see in the UK and other places, sort of high-income places like the UK, that breastfeeding is predictive of lots of positive outcomes in the offspring, um, from sort of blood pressure to BMI to IQ. So, but, but breastfeeding is also very socially patterned in the UK. So, so are we seeing an impact of breastfeeding or are we just seeing that this kind of social patterning that being wealthier is, is predictive of a better So the idea is so wealthier people are more likely to breastfeed. Yeah, and the, and the outcomes are better yeah. and you don't know which one yeah. is. Yeah. So... Um, Mary Jo Brion, who did this paper, which was published back in 2011, compared a cohort of people in Bristol called the Children of the 90s with a cohort in Pelotas in Brazil, where breastfeeding is not socially patterned at all. It's pretty much whatever social class you are, you're just as likely to breastfeed or not. And compared the, the rates of various different outcomes in the two cohorts. And what she found was that the association between BMI and blood pressure that you see really strongly in the UK, you just didn't see in Brazil at all. But weirdly, the association with IQ, you did still see. So that might indicate that breastfeeding does have some impact on IQ, but possibly, probably not on BMI and um, on obesity. So, what is, I mean, it's, I'm always amazed whenever uh, I talk to people who do the sort of research you do, uh, and Pete Etchells, who's uh, one of the friends of Cosmic Shambles, who's just written a book about video games and talks about the video game research, is that you're, you're dealing with really difficult data. That, like you said, everyone's got an opinion on this, but to actually understand any of it, you yeah. know. And so how much do you trust, given, let's just deviate into what is in the headlines for a minute. How, if people read a headline, given that a lot of this stuff is likely to be overhyped how much how much do the, do the headlines get it right in general or are they just all in your field in, like in health research, health research. research. Yeah. Um, it can be really varied so i do think it's getting better i genuinely do think it's getting better i think if you read a whole article as well often the information is in there the headlines might be rubbish but the reporting of these kind of health science studies and drug science studies is improving um but you do see headlines. There, there was one that was particularly egregious, which um, was quite a few years ago now, but it was in the Daily Mail, and it was about um, just one joint will um, lead to schizophrenia. One joint of cannabis will lead to schizophrenia. What it didn't mention was that the study was done on mice, not looking at <laughs> schizophrenia, not even using cannabis. It was using a, a synthetic cannabinoid. So uh, every single word in the headline was wrong. Well, if you're the, so frankly, if you're the size of a mouse, then a the whole joint probably is going to get you schizophrenia. <laughs> so there aren't mice like rolling splits in cages. <laughs> well, people, you know, universities don't talk enough about what goes on, maybe. <laughs> so, um, sorry, I derailed you slightly. <laughs> 
Um, let's move on to let's move on to space science then. So, Lucy, the missions and the engineers and the people who like how just give us a sense of how long it takes to get a mission to get to the point where you get a pretty picture, and also how many don't make it. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, we have high aspirations in space science. There's so many things that we want to work on, so many questions that we want answered, but there's only so much money to go around to make our missions, and so. It's perhaps worth saying that to fly a mission to study the sun or study another object in the solar system might be you know, several hundred million dollars cost. So countries have to come together and the whole community has to get behind the mission that's going to be the mission of, of your career. So, for example, at the moment we're working on Solar Orbiter that will launch next, early next year. And that is the European solar physics mission that will see me probably through the rest of my career now. And we've been working on that for, well, concept-wise, building the community, working on science questions. I mean, it's probably 30 years. So it, it predates my career. And so we, yeah, we have to bring people together because it's so expensive. And along the way, there have been... Oh, a multitude of other missions that, that we proposed. So as an example, we had... So Solar Orbiter will go into orbit around the sun, it will get close, as close as about the planet Mercury is. Um, but this is, this is the end point of missions where we looked at having a fleet of satellites all around the sun that we called the Solar Sentinels. We wanted a mission that would spiral into the sun. We talked about that at one point. We talked about having missions elsewhere in the solar system that would all feed together to form this sort of uh, constellation of, of spacecraft. So over yeah, year after year after year, we sort of... So you start with lots of, lots of ideas and they kind of get whittled down and you keep yeah. working on the ones until you get to the one yeah, that is going right. to be the beast. That's that's right. And so, and so the community grows. You, you start to think about the instruments you're going to build, what they're going to be like, their specifications. And then eventually, a few years before you want the launch, you actually get money from somewhere to start to work on the mission. So, so who pays for all the other bits then? Yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. And we would say that they should be paid by somebody, but we, we take the hit ourselves you know, it's just academics who are working in collaboration, attending conferences. So it comes through our Hefke funding, through our. So you're paid to be. Funding. We are paid to be university academics, and that that's money right. comes from the. And then that salaried time. Yeah. Is taken up doing yeah, this work. That's right. So you have to be generous to do that for the community because if you're working on developing mission ideas, then you're not necessarily publishing your papers and doing all the things that, that you get judged on. Um, but yeah, so sort of to perhaps finish on the timeline slightly is we would get funding um, eventually from the UK Space Agency to build our instruments several years before launch or a few years before launch. And so when, when is this going to, so Solar Orbiter, so when is that going to launch? launch um, February 2020. So and when will the first? sort of year. pretty pictures come back <laughs> oh, yeah yeah so pretty pictures coming back um it will take us uh, about three years i think to get to the point where we will start to have some pictures because so we want to get close to the sun so we have to do gravitational assist off of venus to get into the right orbit and get close enough but the other side of the not pretty pictures is that um we want to measure the extended atmosphere of the sun which is made of particles electrons protons magnetic fields electric fields so we, we call these the in situ data sets and they will start to be measured en route to this orbit where we will then eventually take the pictures and the in situ data like that's not sexy at all really but <laughs> there are no pictures so that, what will it tell you what will you learn from so it so it will tell us about um 
So, for example, uh, the configuration of magnetic fields that are ejected from the sun, it will tell us about energy transfer from the sun to the Earth. So is it in the form of particles? Is it in the form of um, waves in magnetic fields? What's the relationship between the particles and, and the magnetic fields? Um, so it, it sort of characterises the details in the atmosphere of the sun. And the big thing that we want to understand um, going forward is about turbulence. So turbulence physics going down to small size scales in the solar wind. And that sort of stuff just never gets talked about. Well, I think it's really interesting because when you look, you know, you see, even if you see the images of the sun, you know, during the eclipse where you do get to see a bit of the corona. But actually, you think all that space around it, like you are, you are looking through stuff that you yeah. want to understand. These magnetic fields and the the light of various wavelengths, and it's there, except yeah. you can't see it. And yeah. it's really interesting, because you're kind of looking through all this really interesting physics. Yeah. But all you can see is the sun, you know. So the way I sort of conceptualise it is to think that we are in the atmosphere of the sun, because it's so extended. It doesn't end where you think it might if you looked at a picture of an eclipse, say. So you see, you know, the eclipse sun, and you see these sort of radial features coming out from the sun. But if, yeah, that's not where the atmosphere ends. The atmosphere extends far out beyond the orbit of Pluto. So Voyager 2 and Voyager 1 now have left the atmosphere of the sun, the, the distance of, I forget now, it's like 18 billion kilometres or something. So you know, it's way, way, way beyond <laughs> the orbits of the planets. And that whole volume of space is, um, it contains particles and magnetic fields from the sun. And we want to be able to understand how the sun generates that, extended atmosphere, how it modulates it over time, what are the physical processes involved in that. And actually that's what Solar Orbiter will be, uh, will be uh, it is, is designed to study. But I, I'm sort of wondering yeah, how much of that is actually going to make it into the news when we start to get those data. Set. Well, I have a be in my... I mean, I think generally that the, the news is not the way to share science because it picks up on points in science but it's no way to tell the story and you know these things a lot of things kind of rumble along in the background and, and maybe they poke their heads up above the horizon but actually that's almost never the interesting point there's all this building work that goes on before um, and sometimes it's really so uh, you know I've got a be in my bonnet about battery technology and you hear a lot battery technology is really interesting in the sense as a, as a thing to look at because everybody uses batteries most people have a phone or a battery powered something People are aware that, you know, electric vehicles are coming along, that's probably going to need batteries. And there's, so electricity is kind of coming back as a thing. Nobody knows what a battery does, right? In the public sphere, ha I mean, I don't know how many of you, it's not like you can chop, you're discouraged from chopping batteries in half. Please don't go home and do it, right? I will get told off. Um, but because you can't do it, because they contain lots of nasty metals, um, and because it's basically kind of rolled up chemistry that you can't see, no one knows what's in them. And yet these things are going to run our world, right? So, and I think I think one of the, um, you know, the development in battery technology is not just about making them lighter or able to charge and discharge more quickly without blowing up, which is a good thing, but also what they're made out of. So there's um, a debate about uh, use of cobalt in lithium batteries, because if you suddenly have a lot more batteries, you start to want these rare earth metals and things like cobalt. They've got to come from somewhere. And the major source of co cobalt at the moment is a mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's generally considered to be highly unethical. So there's a lot of battery technology going on to try and make batteries that don't need cobalt. But it's, a, it's an area of science which is going to be completely ignored because people just want batteries to work, right? No one really cares about what's in them. And yet they're quite interesting objects. But because the chemistry is really small scale and hard to, you know, you can't see it doing anything, 
it just, it's never going to be in the news, apart from some number. Someone's going to have a number that says a battery that can, you know, hold this much charge or whatever it is. And people go, oh, that sounds like a lot. And then the whole area of science will disappear below the horizon just because there's no visceral connection to it. And yet it's really important, especially when it comes to where these materials come from. So I think, you know, it, these sort of, um, and yet, you know, if you were to rank topics in order of importance for the future world, batteries would be right up yeah. there. And yet, like as a human being, just I just put it in a thing and it works. <laughs> it's it's a the problem with electricity is that the measure of its success is that the more successful it is, the less you notice it. And I think that's a common thread in a lot of these areas of science is that fundamentally, if they work, we don't talk about them. Nobody has a user group for their toaster. Right? I hope. Not until someone really makes the Internet of Things go a bit crazy <laughs> and your toaster starts answering back. All the things you're talking about are so important because you can't vote with your, with your wallet um, and then try and influence the ethics of science if you don't know about these topics. And, and that's ultimately what we want in creating an, um, the sort of community between professional scientists and, and everybody in the country. You want people to make informed decisions and you want it to be... Um, an environment in which there is an opportunity for dialogue, but that dialogue then has to lead to something, and we want that public money is spent in an ethical way for the benefit of all of us. So let's pick up on another example. So, Linda, there's this project called Watchman, which is something to do with a neutrino detector in a van. Yeah. Tell us about that. <laughs> uh, do you have one? <laughs> That's the first question. I don't have one on me. Uh, I don't have one parked outside, <laughs> unfortunately, although I'd love to. Um, yeah, so uh, this project called Watchman, uh, a friend of mine actually um, works on it. The idea is that you have uh, a neutrino detector in a van, just like what uh, uh, Helen was saying. Um, this, is, uh, this is because uh, um, this can be used to monitor um, nuclear reactors. So let's just maybe say what neutrinos are. Yeah, exactly. Let's take a step back. Exactly. What are neutrinos? So neutrinos are, are these tiny elementary particles. They're like everywhere. Uh, every second you have uh, roughly 100 uh, billion neutrinos just going through your body. And these are just the neutrinos produced by the sun. There's a lot more neutrinos produced by... Um, uh, nuclear reactors, for example. Bananas produce uh, about 80 neutrinos per second. We produce a few number of neutrinos per second, depending on how many bananas or avocados you've eaten. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so you have like all of these neutrinos everywhere. They're absolutely tiny, and they're electrically neutral, and uh, they're extremely difficult to detect. So because they're so small and they're not charged, Everything for neutrinos is basically empty space. So they just travel through things. They travel through like pretty much everything. Like to stop a neutrino, you would need, uh, for sure, you would need one light year of lead just to stop, to make sure that you're actually stopping them. But, you know, if you, for the rules of statistics, because in the end of the day, we all do statistics, if you have a big volume enough, you can hope that at some point you'll see, uh, you see one or a few, uh, or some tens, uh, depending on uh, how many neutrinos you produced. Uh, so the idea here is that although there are billions and billions of them, yeah. they've almost never actually 
do something in exactly. our world and you need them to do something before you can see them. Exactly, that's exactly that. So you can only see a neutrino when the neutrino hits something else. So when the neutrino hits an atom and produces other particles and then you detect the other particles, which is a very interesting concept because it's a bit like saying, like, you know, you go into the kitchen, you look at your jam jar and you're like, hmm, someone has ate my jam. Mm. Let's make up a particle that came here and ate my jam. And that I'm going to call that a neutrino. So that's how we detect neutrinos. So we see something happening without, uh, you know, without knowing why that happened. And, uh, and that's the signature of, uh, of a neutrino, which is a little bit crazy to... Um, yeah, to think about it. So you've got this van that's yeah, so we've doing got this. this van. So we don't have the van yet. It's the way we're waiting on the van. Um, so the idea is that um, when you're so in in in, the, in nuclear reactors, uh, there's like different um, uh, there's like nuclear fission in which uh, energy is produced. And uh, together with your uh, energy and electricity, uh, there's some number of neutrinos that are actually produced. So if you put a neutrino detector at a specific distance, some number of kilometers, like 25 or 30 kilometers, your neutrino detector uh, will be able to see the activity that you have uh, in your nuclear reactor. And this is a technique that is used basically all over the world to actually study uh, neutrinos in general. So we put neutrino detectors close to nuclear reactors just to study the neutrino properties. Until Watchman was like, wait, can we do actually the other way around? Can we, uh, can we actually look at um, what's happening inside the reactor just by looking at the neutrinos? And the idea is that if you're, um, if you're just using a nuclear reactor to produce, uh, um, to produce just electricity, you would I don't know, you would produce basically a, a certain number of neutrino in a specific energy. Whereas if you're enriching, um, enriching uranium to, to make uh, an atomic bomb, then at that point you would produce neutrinos at a very different energy in a different spectrum. So you can use Watchman, so this neutrino reactor, uh, sorry, neutrino detector in a van, and then park it in like different places to monitor uh, non um, sorry, to monitor compliance with non-proliferation treaties. So to make sure that um, s people are not you know, sneakily uh, enriching uranium in their basement or <laughs> rather than in their basement. What is brilliant about this, though, is that it's a van. Yeah. I mean, you know, all the vehicles, you could have picked a Land Rover, you could have picked a, a sort of one of those 70s um, uh, VW bus type things. Uh, actually, you should do it in a 70s VW bus with flower power really things good. on the side. Yeah. <laughs> Imagining it like a surveillance van where it's got like dog washing on the yeah. side. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so at the moment is uh, um, the prototype is being built in uh, the Bolby mine actually in the north uh, east of England. If I got my geography right, and uh, so so this is this is really happening. This. this is happening. Yeah, it's real. I didn't make it up. <laughs> <laughs> How many of them are there going to be? I mean, is this going to be like back in the day, like many years ago, when the TV trucks used to pretend <laughs> to go around to see if you had a TV license? Is that how many? That, how many I'm do you need? I don't, I don't know how many do you need. I think you only need one. What if someone just has lots of bananas? True. <laughs> How many bananas have you eaten today? Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> um, no, so at the moment is, uh, is in the construction phase of the prototype. And so once, uh, uh, once, that, once that phase is, is finished, then uh, 
because the prototype is currently in a mine, because one of the biggest problem, uh, one of the big, biggest challenges actually for, for this detector is uh, um, actually to screen or to remove the background coming from cosmic rays, so from the natural radiation that you have uh, on, on the surface. So that will be uh, the challenge that needs to be sort of solved before putting it on a van. So, uh, and the moment he still sits in a mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us. Let, do let the Cosmic Shambles Network know when that's... Uh, well, we can all go van spotting. It's going to be brilliant. <laughs> um, Susie, have you got any other examples of science that should or sh hasn't been seen or should be seen or what's going on that we don't um, know about? Oh, I can tell you about another method that I like. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Sensing a bit of a theme here. She um, had we gave her biscuits beforehand, and it's big, clearly big just... Anyway, go on. <laughs> um, but I could talk a bit about how we use genetics in these cohort studies, which isn't necessarily in the way that you might think. Because I think genetics is something that definitely isn't unsung. But the way that we've started to use it is perhaps in a slightly different way. So what, back to the problem of confounding, we can't... Um, randomly assigned people but we do we ran we get randomly assigned our genetics at conception so there's an idea in, in economics that if you've got a confounded association if you can find a proxy for your exposure of interest um that isn't suffering from the same confounding and you look at the association between that proxy and your outcome that could tell you about causality in that association so just give us an example of that Luke. so we are interested in smoking is a better example than cannabis use in this case. Um, the link between smoking and depression, for example. There are genetic variables that really strongly predict if you're a smoker, how heavy a smoker you'll be. Uh, so if we have these genetic variants measured in people, the way you inherit your genetics should be independent of the environment around you and should also be for the most part, most of the genes that you inherit are independent from the other genes that you inherit because you don't just get entirely half from one parent, half from another. There's lots of crossover in, um, yeah, as cells merge. Um, so this is the theory. There are places where it falls down, but broadly speaking, if you can randomly assign people to whether they're a heavier or a lighter smoker based on their genetics rather than actually the measure of smoking itself which is confounded by all sorts of other things and look at the association between genetics and the outcome that you're interested in that can tell you about whether what you're seeing is a causal association or whether it's probably being driven by confounding so it falls down in lots of places but it falls down in lots of different places from other like observational epidemiological studies so if you can find consistent associations in both observational and this new method and some of these other methods as well that can give you a much stronger idea that what you're seeing and what has been shown so far is that it looks like smoking is causally related to BMI for example which is why some people when they quit smoking find that they put on weight there might actually be Sort of, it might be that the smoking is helping. So if we think about how to improve stop smoking services, taking that into account and offering people advice on keeping their weight managed while they're quitting smoking can be really helpful. These kind of designs have also hinted that there might be, and this is still quite sort of tentative at the moment, but there might be some sort of interplay between caffeine and nicotine, which might mean that 
when you're trying to quit smoking, it might change how you absorb caffeine. So you might have to think about how much coffee you're drinking when you are quitting smoking as well. So these kind of things can be really useful in developing interventions that actually work because it's thinking about what other factors might interplay in these relationships. I shared a, an office once at the Cavendish with a, a Greek who was a very heavy smoker and was very insistent on his coffee in the morning. Um, and I for four years and I never did it for four years I had this I really just wanted to replace the coffee with something caffeine free just to see what happened and I was too scared ever to do it um be asleep by 11 a.m <laughs> well it was either that or extremely angry and nobody really wanted to deal with that he was in charge brilliantly of the Cambridge Plate Impact Facility which is a large type of gas gun I was the only person that found that funny anyway <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Um, so, Lucy, what else is going on in the world of space science that we don't talk yeah. enough about? Well, maybe we could come back to spectroscopy again, which is sort of mentioned at the start. So if we take the light from our sun or, or another star and split it up into its component colours, you know, you can just plot a sort of wiggly line on a page that tells you how intense the light is at different wavelengths or different frequencies. So that's, you know, an absolutely fundamental technique in exploring the universe but again it just doesn't make for a nice pretty picture and that's because it tells us about what atoms are there that's right so yeah you're right it tells us which atoms are emitting light so atoms will have a characteristic fingerprint in terms of the light the frequency of the wavelength of light that it emits so when we look at a spectrum we can work out the composition the elemental composition of the object we're looking at and then if we look at the position of those so-called spectral lines emitted by these these particles if we look at the position, we can see if they're red-shifted or blue-shifted, so slightly shifted in frequency that tells us how the material is moving. And we can look at, um, in other ways, to, uh, we use that data to tell us about the density of those particles. So it's really the fundamentals, you know, the fundamental characterization of the distant objects we're looking at. But um, the instrument that makes, uh, creates these data is basically a slit that you pass the light through and then you disperse it into the spectrum. So it's not a camera in the sense of, you know, you, you focus an image. Now, there are ways that you can use these slit spectrometers to build up an image over time, but it, it takes time. So typically, our spectrometers will only look at very small patches of the sun, but what they will give us is this amazingly rich spectrum of information. And, and I always think that it's, it, it's a shame that these kind of telescopes aren't talked about more and the science of them isn't talked about more. And as an example, we have a spectrometer that's flying on a Japanese mission called Hinade, and that was launched back in 2006. Um, but it's just been a lot harder to sort of get awareness of the science that's happening with that telescope. But what's really nice is it allows us to link the science of the sun with the science of stars in general, because we can do these really fundamental studies. Um, and one of my colleagues is looking at um, the composition of the atmosphere of the sun and how it changes over time. So you know, what's the fraction of oxygen in the gas versus the amount of iron in the gas? And, you know, all this stuff, it doesn't doesn't, you know, don't sense that the audience like, oh, wow, that's really amazing stuff. <laughs> Try harder, audience, come on. <laughs> but for us, it is really amazing. And but it's amazing because it's chemistry at a distance. That's yeah. what I find astonishing about spectroscopy is you've got these really tiny atoms, which would be too, like if they were sitting in front of us, we wouldn't be able to look at them and see what they were when they're that, you know, in a gas like that. And yet they can be millions of miles away you know, in a big dust plume, which is really very sort of um, nebulous. I mean, it's almost not there. There's so little of it. And yet it changes the light in such a way that you can see what atom it is. And it's such a fundamental thing. Yeah. And it tells us about 
physical processes happening at really small size scales. So when we're thinking about processes that happen on the sun, you know, we, sometimes we're thinking of things that um, you know, are, are taking place in structures many, many times the size of the Earth itself. But sometimes we're thinking about processes that take place over metres. And we can't resolve that in our images of the sun, but we can get a hint of the physics by using spectrometers. So, for example, when we see parts of the atmosphere of the sun change their chemical composition, we can test ideas about how gas gets moved around in the atmosphere of the sun from the surface to the atmosphere, so possibly to do with waves that move along magnetic field lines in the atmosphere of the sun and sort of energise and pick up particles and move them around. So we, we take this sort of bulk data, but yeah, you can diagnose then small-scale physical processes that are happening, and we can make links between what we, are, what we infer and detect is happening in the atmosphere of the sun and what's happening on other stars. So is our sun really the kind of Rosetta Stone to understand other stars or is it doing something different and actually that sort of where we sit on that changes over time and and the work around chemical composition it looks like the sun was a bit different to start off with but now we're thinking actually we can explain what the sun does using the microphysics about waves and moving particles around to to make a link between physical processes in the atmosphere of our sun and physical processes in sort of sun sun-like stars and there's a there's a something here isn't there which is about you know we, we call this thing blue sky research or curiosity driven research when we do it because it's interesting right we're just interested isn't it good to know how the world is and and then there's a pragmatic side like my northern nana what can you do when you know that and um which is a good question and one that i still haven't satisfactorily answered <laughs> but anyway um but but so sometimes these things will turn out to be useful. And the thing about blue sky science is I think it's important to do it because that's part of being human, the drive to explore. Just because it's, you know, curiosity is what drives us. If you humans find things interesting, we're always like poking stuff, right? Um, not tigers, that's a bad idea, but other things. And But sometimes these things do turn out to be really useful down the line, but you can't ever predict. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was in a meeting at the, the, the London Ocean Forum, something, an event we had today, and um, there was a lot of talk about deep sea mining and um, the places, the small number of places on the seafloor which are exceptionally rich in life um, are pretty much exactly where the manganese nodules and various other metallic things are that miners are interested in mining. And, and the discussion went along the lines of, you know, first of all, all this amazing ecology, and then here's what the mining companies are probably going to do to it unless we regulate them. And, um, and at some point, one of the, the, the experts on policy said, he said, well, the problem is that the miners have just arrived at this. He said, you should have been asking the science questions 25 years ago, because then you'd have the answers that would tell them this, this is not going to work like that. But because the science has barely even started on the seafloor, they just want to do it. And, you know, the science can't keep up fast enough. And so potentially we've got a problem there with regulating something we hadn't even really... Well, actually, people did think about it because there was um, a case where the, the US Navy, I think, used deep-sea mining as a cover to go looking for a Soviet submarine or something like that. Um, very convenient story. But apart from that, no one was interested in it. It was just like those bonkers oceanographers who were staring at a seafloor that looks like it's dead. And suddenly, it might be this really important and interesting thing for the, you know, our whole planet and, and how the ocean works. And we've just, we just weren't curious about the right thing at the right time. So are there, cases, are there other cases like that you can think of where, I mean, because I don't think science should be purely pragmatic. However, it is useful when you've already got the answers uh, before, before the world catches up. Are there examples of that working or not working, the sort of difference between blue skies research suddenly becoming 
you know, from going from unsung to let's wave the flag about this? It's a hard question, maybe. Any examples of that? I don't know whether it's quite the same, but I think this idea in psychology in particular about kind of how we design... I'm going back to methods, sorry. How we design our It's all right, we've given up. You carry on. <laughs> I mean, I don't really do anything other than methods, so... Uh, like, how we design our studies and thinking about things like, are we putting enough um, individuals in our studies to make them adequately powered to actually find the answer that we're thinking? And our our is psychology research and other research as well, just psychology seems to be leading the way in kind of addressing this, but are studies um, replicable or is there this kind of thing that we've done lots and lots of small-scale studies that aren't really designed properly? So if the ones that do find effects tend to overestimate the size of those effects, this kind of this idea that's called a winner's curse, because of the way that we do statistics we've sort of ended up having this arbitrary point where we say on this side it doesn't, there's no association and on this side there is an association where actually what we should have been doing all along is kind of this gradation of strength of evidence. Um, so I think this kind of idea of how replicable things are started off as kind of I don't know, maybe little nerds like me going, oh, I wonder why, what this is, and why, and PhD students tearing their hair out that they can't replicate this well-established finding um, because it doesn't actually exist. So this has now become a huge thing of um, working, sort of scientists across the world working together to work out sort of what of these kind of core psychological principles are actually true. It's running this reproducibility project where getting sort of third-year project students and PhD students and anyone really who's willing to, to try and replicate a study based on the paper to see whether it will happen and to take much more care about how you design your study in the first place. And, like, and why is this important? Because, well, it's important for lots of reasons, for sort of health reasons and understanding what's true and stopping PhD students from having to waste three years of their life trying to replicate something that doesn't exist. But it's also... This is true in terms of like animal studies as well. So there was a really great paper that from some of my colleagues in Bristol wrote a few years ago where they looked at lots of animal studies and found that most of them were only powered at somewhere between, I think, about 18 and 30%, when really you want to be designing studies at 80 or 90%. And the lower so what do you mean by powered by? So it's how many um, participants that you've got, well, how many subjects that you've got in your study and the size of the effect that you'll be able to find with that few or number of people. So the idea is that if, if it's a smaller effect, you need a bigger sample size exactly. in order to be yeah, sure that that's what you're seeing. Because the way that we do kind of statistics is all based on probabilities. So the, it's like if you think about flipping a coin five times compared to flipping a coin 500 times and the sort of patterns that you see, you might get a really weird um, sort of fluke. If you flip a coin five times... There's a mathematician looking at me in the back row, which is making me feel nervous <laughs> talking about this. But um, if you flip a coin, he does five that to everyone. It's all right. Yeah, five heads. <laughs> that's quite amazing. If you flip a coin five hundred times and you get five hundred heads, that's pretty unusual. So that's a very. I'm not going to try and explain it any more than that. <laughs> but I think I think that's kind of you get the gist of it, right? Um, but people have been designing these animal studies with very few animals in them, and actually, that's ethically really dubious because. 
if you have low power in your study, you're less likely to find something that's there. But you're also, if you, you're more likely to find something that isn't there as well. It's kind of this double whammy of problems in your... So in the difficulty is, and I guess people have been trying to use fewer animals cause exactly. to, to reduce... But actually, no one a, likes the idea of that, but study with more animals in to just do it once is better than loads of little studies that you then need to meta-analyse together to find the answer. So actually, the way that we, people have been doing it in the past is probably actually ethically far more dubious than they might have thought by thinking that actually you need to use fewer animals, but you do need to power your study well enough to actually find what you're looking for in the first place. And just, so this idea of registered reports has come along recently. I just want to very briefly explain what that is, because I think it's the kind of thing, like there's all these problems, like it's difficult, but actually there are solutions. Yeah. You've just got to put them in place. So one of the things that has potentially been happening in these kind of... Um, studies that are no longer replicable, or they never were replicable, but we're just finding out, is that people have done lots and lots of different... Answer, tried to answer lots and lots of different questions in one study, and obviously the law of averages mean that if you're testing loads and loads of different things, one of them will magically cross over this stupid threshold um, just by chance. And what has happened is that people have run tens, maybe even more of different questions, what, the one that's jumped over that line, that's the one they've published, and the other nine, or however many, have just gone in the desk drawer. So the idea of pre-registering is that you say exactly what analyses you're going to do before you do them, so that you can't do that. And if you do, then your pre-registration is up there, and you can go, OK, so they've published that finding, and that's really interesting, but they also said they were going to do that, 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 and that, which isn't then in their paper. And it's not to say that you can't then do these exploratory analyses as well. If you, if you run something, you find something interesting and think, oh, I wish I said I was going to split that by gender and have a look at that as well. You can still do that, and you can still report it in your paper, but it just becomes much clearer that it's exploratory, and so it's not the sort of core finding of your paper, and the people who are reading it can then interpret it as such. So it just gives an extra kind of check and balance of, of what you're doing. Um, and how about, you know, Lucy and Linda? Are there examples of... Yeah, so I, while I was listening to that, I was like... To me, it's just so weird that it wasn't done like that before. <laughs> right. It's just like, like, why wasn't it done? I don't know. Like in, in, in particle physics, when we do any kind of analysis, we often do blind analysis. So what we mean by blind analysis is that um, at the beginning of your, at the start of your research, you, um, you have uh, an objective. You say, I want to study this specific process. I want to see this specific thing. Uh, I don't know. And then you develop a series of methods and, uh, and uh, you, you do your analysis on simulations or on uh, data samples that are not the, uh, the data that you've collected. And that's what we mean by blinded. So you, you develop basically a series of methods just to make sure that you're not biasing yourself, that you're not basically looking at the data and saying like, oh, I like this neutrino. I don't like that neutrino. I'm going to put it away. Oh, I like this neutrino. Oh, I don't like that other one. And you put it away. So you do it over and over again on uh, simulations. And then once you're sure that you're not basically using your own preferences to uh, pick, and, um, pick what you want, then you're allowed to, to look at the real data sets and to see if there's anything 
in it that is really what you're And people, there have been studies where they've been very clever because, you know, there might be two different groups working on different analysis methods and they, they're not allowed to talk to each other because they've yeah. both got to... Tell us about some of those. Yeah, so it's actually even more interesting that right now quite a lot of particle physics is using uh, uh, machine learning and data science. And, uh, and, and what we developed is also, and this is all thanks to the computing and data science people, I know nothing about Sorry that. if you didn't like yeah. statistics and came along anyway, by the way, this <laughs> evening. Uh, you, can, you can train uh, neural networks. So neural, a neural network is a program that is supposed to like, uh, learn um, from, uh, um, from experience and uh, learn from what it sees. But what you can do is you can ha have adversarial neural networks. So you can <laughs> Make them fight. Exactly. Make them fight. Make them fight to death. <laughs> And then, and I then thought particle physicists were nice people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't no. know where you got that. Yeah. No. <laughs> and so the idea is that um, one of them is uh, is training to look, for example, like at uh, for something that looks like this glass in in this particular image, whereas the other one is trying to trick it. It's trying to trick it oh, into not it's not a glass, that's that's something else. And then once you have something that is. Uh, um, stable enough to actually find uh, what you're looking for, even with an adversarial... Um, I love network. the idea of computer programs trying to trick each other. Yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> I, I mean, it's worrying, it's like, yeah. but it's, yeah. So, and that, but that, that's in order, and the, and the reason for this is that, you know, the data you collect is, well, it's expensive to collect, but these are also very tiny effects, and you, you, you haven't got space yeah. to... to Muck yeah, it up, and then basically. Like, I mean, like we're humans in the end. So if you if if you're like if you're making an experiment, you if you don't preset yourself with a series of rules and methods on how you're going to do it and put it forward that way, just looking at things directly, you know, your wishful thinking <laughs> will will come into play. But I think maybe that's why it's harder for psychologists because yeah. you've got to, you can experiment on things that make sense, whereas we have to experiment <laughs> on people. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I, think, I think maybe that's, that's why we need a bit more wiggle room sometimes. Well, you, you, you just need to get simulated people, yes. you know, <laughs> you just need to get... <laughs> We're not uh, far let's from do that. all of this in Second Life or whatever. There's a new version of that, the isn't it? I can't remember. The, yeah, one of that. Showing my age. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, any other bits of... Uh, bits? Interesting science. We've covered a lot of things. Are there any other bits and pieces that... I think there's interesting little things. So I've got a beer in my bonnet about Wi-Fi bandwidth, actually. And it came, you know, because... It, so Lucy was talking about spectroscopy, and there's this idea that you can, you can take a beam of light and you can refract it and sort of spread out, just break it down into all the wavelengths that it exists, you know, that are inside it, and you can look at that pattern and learn things from it. But there's a question about how far you can subdivide and subdivide, because fundamentally that's what your phone's doing, right? It's picking up one of those. If you were to do that... And, and then pick one narrow bandwidth. That's what your phone's listening to. That's why you can be sitting next to someone who has the same model of phone, having a different conversation with somebody else, and you're not interfering. It's because they're picking very slim little slices of the spectrum, and they were. But you can't. There's a sort of limit. How much can you? How many things can you squish into the spectrum? And and so there's there's starting to be a debate at the moment because um, there are uh, so. Um, Elon Musk put up recently a constellation of mega satellites, which we discussed on a previous science shambles. Um, and, and the problem is that the bandwidth that those 
low Earth orbit satellites, are that, well, they're slightly weird, but those satellites are using, but starting to encroach on what the weather, what the weather scientists are using. So you've, you can't, you, there's only so much spectrum, there's not, there isn't any more. You can make it narrower and narrower, but there start to be limits on how thinly you can slice it. And after you've sliced it as thinly as you can, then you all have to have a big fight over yeah, who gets well, what. Well, you do, and, and, and there are global fights over the use of the radio spectrum. So um, one of my colleagues, husbands is is involved in uh, well he's a radio astronomer and and he fights for radio astronomers to maintain the bandwidth that they need to do their radio observations so you know in, in previous decades it wasn't an issue to for astronomers you know you had access to the frequencies but now you've got all this utility coming from radio waves you've got more and more and more competition and one technology i think that's interesting that's going to come through that will help on the space science side is that we will i hope start to move from radio communication as the way that we uh, get and send data to our spacecraft to using lasers and so that will then shift, obviously, the wavelength of light we're using. And it will also mean that we've got a much bigger bandwidth by sort of orders of magnitude. So in terms of what we can do with our instrumentation, that will, that will go through the roof. So it will, it will help everybody <laughs> nice. if the European Space Agency can develop that technology for us. Is that a little flag waving for can, <laughs> can we have lasers sooner rather than later? Yeah, and we, I'm hoping that we will test that technology on an upcoming mission called Lagrange. So this is a space weather mission that we're still developing at the moment. And it will go to, the name comes from the um, Lagrange points in the solar system, which are these really interesting places where the gravitational field, um, say, of the sun and the earth is sort of balanced. And that's a sort of very crude way of putting it. And then you can orbit spacecraft around those Lagrange points. And so we want to put one at the fifth Lagrange point that trails the earth around the sun to look at the sun and the space in between us and the earth. Um, but because it's 150 million kilometers away, we, we need to get our huge <laughs> amounts of data back and um, laser technology could be the way to do that. So I'm hoping we will have a technology tester on that spacecraft that will then mean that's sort of the, the future future for the European Space Agency. I like this. Lasers sound like proper future technology. They that's that's yeah, what yeah. should be happening, isn't it? Um, thank you very much for paying attention and coming along with us on this journey. Please join me in thanking our three fabulous panellists, Linda, Lucy and Susie. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed that, uh, particularly Linda's stuff about neutrinos, we've got a new article just gone out on the site this week from Professor John Butterworth uh, about new neutrino experiments that are happening over in Germany. So make sure you check that out. Patreon.com slash bookshambles or cosmicshambles.com slash shops or slash events is a great way to support what we do here at Cosmic Shambles. Back soon with another new episode of the Science Shambles podcast. Happy Ada Lovelace Day. Have a great week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.